Welcome to Season 2, Episode 10 of the Warfighter Podcast, Doesn't Time Fly? You start <laughs> off going, I don't know how I'm going to do this whole season, and then suddenly it's Episode 10. Tom's there. It is a little bit sad. You know, I am enjoying these opportunities to explore topics with you, Colin, and, you know, it's great that people are enjoying what we're doing. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We basically talk about topics to do with training and simulation within defense, and it's a pretty broad church, just that using those words. Um, we just bring experts on to share their wisdom. So we're not just a one-stop shop for the UK. We get people and speakers from all around the globe. I think before we go on to introduce our interviewee, we must say thank you to our sponsor. So there's a reason why we're not sponsored by Surfshark. There's a reason why we're not going to sell you a website, Visa Software. Isn't there, Tom? Yeah, exactly. There's a reason why we don't have some dodgy, cheap music playing with some pre-recorded drivel. And that's because we've got a great sponsor by way of Babcock International, and they give us the complete breadth and complete creative control of what we discuss. And actually, they're a great sounder board for ideas and topics as well. So thank you very much for making this possible. Right. So this guest came out of nowhere, I've got to say. And it was it was introduced by a contact of ours over at NATO, said you should speak to Say. And yeah, I think this is going to quickly becoming one of my most enjoyable conversations we've had to date. Yeah, well, you're meant to say because of your awesome network, Tom, you found this. <laughs> because of the amazing why. Warfighter podcast listeners, even better. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that's great. I mean, it's working. That, that's how it's meant to work. So please, if you've got ideas for people we should talk to, please do, because it, it's working. The topic is a learning ecosystem and hold fast. We'll probably think of a clickbaity title for this, but that's what it's about. You know, one of those things that it, I, I think it, evokes strong memories from the past when we were talking about this and going isn't training terrible because we treat everyone the same but we have to yeah and we've all had the sergeant who's you know shouting at you or whatever because that he was shout or she was shouted at when they were going through training and therefore that was the way it always needs to be so this is a a new approach and it's really exciting and having just recorded it it is i think crucial because I remember when I left the military, I, I did a year's worth of teaching and, and I was absolutely flabbergasted to find out that the education, the curriculum for the computer science that I was teaching, there was no central repository for lessons, lesson plans, homework, differentiation, things that could be heavily invested in to create amazing content, really engaging topics for our students. But instead, it was just like, well, here's the book the children need to know and go away, teachers, and create your own content on, by the way, do these 400 things that are not relevant to teaching at the same time crack on big boy or girl and that was that's what was happened and i just think that was ridiculous so yeah, this is cool yeah and, and, and i think that's kind of the nature of the discussion is like oh there's so much we could do but actually look at look at how far we've come i mean i was i was taking the mick out of you earlier about being too young to remember the argument about why we shouldn't have a national curriculum and even that was fought so within the national curriculum i'm not a teacher so i don't know but there's variation within the national curriculum right you're allowed to, but there's there's some fundamentals. And even that they had to fight for. But going back to your point, yeah, every every teacher has to do their own instructor material, basically. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to our guest this week. So Say Schatz, she's the founder of the Knowledge Forge. She's essentially a pracademic, an amazing academic background, but really looks to practically apply it. And she's going on to do probably one of the most interesting jobs very soon. So enjoy say welcome to the podcast thank you for having me 
I think you were recommended by a mutual contact of ours to come on the podcast. He's over at NATO at the moment and he said, you've got to get Say on. She knows her stuff and she's going to bring some value to the podcast. So I'm really happy that he did connect us and we've got this opportunity to chat. Before we go into the topic and explore a bit more about, basically a bit more of your brain really and your experience, could you give us a bit more about your background and where you are now and where you're going to next? Sure. So I have kind of a mixed background. I like to say that I work at the intersection of humans and technology. So people, cognition, learning, technology, and data. My PhD is in modeling and simulation, and I've always worked around defense and security. So originally in academia, then in industry, then in the Pentagon for a number of years, leading the Advanced Distributed Learning Program, which we're going to talk about that kind of thing here, all about technology and data and lifelong learning. And my next endeavor is I'm going to be moving overseas. Well, overseas for me. So over to the continent and taking on a new role as the executive director for the Partnership for Peace Consortium. Now, most people listening will know exactly what that is. But when you said that to me, uh, my ignorance was like, I have no idea what that is. So maybe you could just touch upon what that is before we go into our topic. Sure. And, and honestly, it's not super related to what we're going to be talking about here. But the Partnership for Peace focuses on supporting partners across the Euro-Atlantic region. So specifically defense and security education, cooperation, and associated research. There's work on developing professional military education, advanced distributed learning, emerging security topics, and regional stability efforts. In the UK, we say that's a punchy job. That is a real meaty, challenging, exciting, fun job to be going into, I imagine. So now I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully keep in touch with you to hear how things are going. As we've mentioned, you're going into a government or a or big organization role. It's worth saying that all your views on the podcast are your own and don't re represent a an official government position or policies because that covered the legalities for you. Thank you for covering the legalities for me. And that's right. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even in this new job yet. So we're just going to be talking today about my background in science and technology. We are going to get to the topic, but the other topic you gave me was cognitive warfare, which is just such a great topic that come back for season three, listener, if you wanted to listen to, say, talk about cognitive warfare and the, and the future of that, because it's going to be fascinating. So cognitive warfare is the flip side of what we're talking about today. We're going to talk today about how do we use technology, data, our understanding of human cognition and psychology and neuroscience and all of that to expedite training, education, learning and development to facilitate human overmatch. But if you use those same tools for bad ends, then you start to get to cognitive warfare. Can't wait for that chat. Before we get overexcited to start talking about that, let's take that one step back and talk about the topic, which is learning ecosystem. And what, what is that as a concept? Over to you, say, for that. So the learning ecosystem concept is imagine that every training, education, an experiential learning and development opportunity that you have across your life is interconnected. Interconnected through data, through intentional application, learning science, talent management, and that it's optimized both at the local level for you personally, at the team level, and at the organizational level. In other words, it is this idea of an interconnected learning continuum, at least from hire to retire, that blends formal informal learning, even job experiences, so that we are adapting and optimizing across the entire system. 
And is this something that is being brought across from kind of the civilian world as a concept, or is this a completely new way of thinking that is being developed specifically for defense industry and, and military training? That's a good question. I think if I had to wager, I would say that it grew out of the defense community originally, but it's a concept that's taken hold in a number of areas, certainly within defense and security, because we have such a large and diverse workforce and such a challenging mission set that really needs the optimization that this sort of concept enables. But also we're seeing it across academia and industry. The idea that individuals today will need to have multiple careers, will need to be learning across their entire lives, and that will need to have and be credentialed for, awarded with their non-traditional learning opportunities. This isn't just specific to defense. I mean, what you're describing is very much needed, I think, at least from my experience. The amount of times you end up f- filling out your, the same form a thousand different ways and it, and you just think, why isn't this on a central database? Why aren't people talking to each other? Even when you're signing up to go on a military course, you're filling out the same information every single time. So that's obviously you're on a really basic binary level, the value that that would bring. So putting this together, what would it look like for a junior officer or a soldier being part of this ecosystem? What would it mean for them? on a personal level or a career level. So let's imagine that we're 50 years in the future or some other number of years, I don't know. And this is all working perfectly. So (laughs) you could imagine sort of an Ender's Game approach to junior soldier coming in. All of his or her records are educational records and prior experience records are already bundled in a readable data format, which they give permission right? That's important, right? You own your Mm -hmm. own data. They give permission to move that into the military. Military is able to read it and say, oh, I see that you are strong in these competencies. You haven't had experience in these. Let me target specific education and training to those areas that you perhaps are the weakest and you need a little bit more. This area over here in your skill set, we're not sure about. There's some uncertainty. So let's create a training opportunity or an on-the-job opportunity so we can observe your performance. Let's give you real-time feedback. Let's optimize that learning and development approach for you and for your team, right? So it doesn't just have to be at an individual level so that you move through the developmental process more rapidly and more effectively and then are placed into the next job opportunity that is best aligned with both your skill set, as well as the organizational needs. At that organizational level, we're also able to use all of these data that are collected across learning and development and workforce experiences to then look across the entire talent infrastructure and say, here's an area where we see that our education isn't quite working to the level that we want. Let's see if we can optimize that. Or it looks like in the next few years, we're not going to have enough medical officers Let's start preparing now so that we can plan for the future. So it's really about being able to leverage data, artificial intelligence across the workforce, specifically for learning and development, but also for talent elements as well. So this is about optimizing at the individual, team, and organizational levels. I've heard of this talked about before, and the one thing that springs to mind, if you've ever experienced military or government e-learning, it tends to be... (laughs) lowest economic cost, most viable product. So they don't try to spend a lot of money. And this sounds like this might take some investment. Is that a true statement? 
So that is a true statement that this will take some investment, but I would also challenge you on the comment about e-learning. Certainly e-learning is one of the many ways that we do training and education, but the idea of the ecosystem is that all of our very different training, education, and workforce systems will talk to each other. What I mean by that is be interoperable with data, both syntactically, like the ones and zeros, and semantically. In other words, that we can exchange meaning across the systems. So you could imagine e-learning systems being able to talk to workforce systems, being able to talk to large-scale training simulators, or even digital gradebooks from a traditional classroom, and then optimization across this entire system of systems. I see your face. I know what you're thinking. Wow, that sounds massive and expensive. <laughs> and oftentimes governments struggle to make these large scale systematic investments, particularly in software. One of the best things about this approach is that it can be incremental and that it is a heterogeneous system. In other words, what we're talking about is equipping each device within the system with interoperable application programming interfaces, APIs, and data standards. Yes, you do need to have some central systems to be able to process the data, but at the local level, each of the different devices, whether it be a simulator, an e-learning system, you name it, can be its own contained system. In other words, we can have each of the different systems be almost like Lego blocks that can plug together that's called a modular open systems approach, and it buys down the risk of trying to do this large-scale system. And it also means that as we make incremental progress, a little bit of interoperability, a little bit of adaptability and optimization, that we can find benefit there. We don't have to achieve the 100% vision in order to start to implement. Certainly, my, some of my background is in simulation, but also seen enough e-learning. That's the, the holy grail. Let's connect all the computers together. That's kind of the metaverse, you know. Um, <laughs> now, now, if you look at just e-learning, for example, let's talk about SCORM, everyone's favorite subject. But for example, there must be, I don't know how many land navigation PowerPoints out there, right? The basics of how to use a compass and map to ground and all that. And probably every bit of the army has their own. So even at a very low level, there's quite, you know, what you're talking about is actually you have modular components all in the right system and you have to share that. You know, there must be some cost saving by everyone drawing from, hey, there's six courses, you can just draw the bits you want. Yeah, the idea is great. The actual implementing that and getting everyone onto the same, you know, school was meant to be like replaceable modules so you could swap bits in them out. But actually, you know, everyone wants to modify theirs. So you never quite got the savings of that. Yes. So I think that that is accurate. And let's also think about SCORM. First, SCORM is really about having a common framework to encapsulate that e-learning so that like a old school tape cassette, it can play in different players. It does do that. Uh, it works well, for example, if somebody is replacing their old legacy learning management system, then you can take your SCORM files out plug them into the new learning management system, and that does help. But you're right that that idea was based upon older technology, and it's not necessarily what we're looking for today. As we think about the learning ecosystem approach, one way to conceptualize it may be as 
an internet of learning things. So if you think about how complex the internet is today, we could never achieve that if we tried to just build today's internet. But we built it incrementally. And over time, we built different layers of interoperability so that now you can have different apps that all plug in through APIs, YouTube and videos and Zoom calls, and it all rests upon this common framework. So that's the same thing that we're talking about with training, education, and workforce systems to create that data framework so that you have that interoperability across those different systems. Now let's clarify a little bit about the types of interoperability we mean, because I don't want to conflate the idea of the different content that's going into a system versus the, let's say, training or education performance that's coming out of the system. Those are different layers within this larger system. You can actually think about several layers. So first, exactly what you just said, like SCORM, you want to have some way to define the metadata of the different training, education, scenarios, jobs that are within the system itself. So you need to have a way to define both the syntactic and the semantic, both the way that that information is communicated across systems, as well as the meaning of that. In other words, if I say land navigation and you say land navigation, do we mean the same thing? Are those the same competencies? And are those at the same level of performance? So that's one, content metadata. Another one is getting student runtime data out of a system. I said student, but I really mean student, trainee, worker. We need some way of getting all that messy, behavioral, sometimes fuzzy, sometimes imperfect data out of the variety of sensors that we're using to evaluate somebody's performance and behaviors. So that could be within an e-learning system, XAPI, looking at the way that somebody scores on a test or their clickstream behaviors. XAPI stands for the Experience Application Programming Interface. It's one of those runtime data standards. Next, you need some way to save the, I'll call it the good stuff, right? You don't want to save every single click that somebody makes within a simulator or within an e-learning course. You need some way to distill that down to somebody's performance. That kind of data would go into somebody's learner record. And sometimes you'll hear this called a learner wallet or a credential record or a learner worker record. There are a variety of terms for this, but basically it's the idea of a way for you to save all of this data. Sort of like when you go on the internet and you have a place where all the cookies on the different websites are saved so that it has that profile about you. We want that kind of profile about learners and workers, not just about your e-commerce records. Also, we need a way to have that semantic interoperability across systems. We need a common frameworks of competencies and jobs so that we can all point to that shared linked data and make sure that we're talking the same language, not just as humans, but of course at the machine level. And I think that you've hit within that great vision, the challenge is agreeing the standard. So if you've got a uh, land nav for the army and or I can't remember which way around it is now, you might do something in degrees, but other courses I know will use mills, right? There's a hundred mills in a quarter of a circle, you know, type thing. I may have this wrong. Other way, other way around, but you know, keep going. <laughs> you know, but sometimes it's those small differences in the course or the standard that make all the difference and you've got to go in and go, yeah, well, look, 90% of this guy or girl is like the other one, but there's 10% where we do it so differently. 
and then you scale that up to some like an MVG course for a pilot and actually sometimes fundamentally the way we fly or the way we do a process is just different and so it's that really annoying reusability challenge isn't it because there's loads of good stuff we could reuse but there might be 10 percent we got to sort of try and change I suppose that's the point though, isn't it? I think that you're, you're trying to say, say, is that there's always reasons not to do something. And if you try and attack the complexity from day one, it, it's going to fall over because there's lots of really good reasons not to do a thing. But actually, it's about just starting what you can do, ensuring that can then scale to complexity, but doing the thing you can achieve, make sure that's successful, then continue to grow. But it's getting the framework right to start off with. And I suppose that's what you're saying, Colin, is try to get the framework right before you start. And trying to make sure it includes complexity is a headache waiting to happen. It's fiendishly complex, isn't it? And it's absolutely what we should be doing. Um, if we take a modular open systems approach where we make each Lego block within the larger system its own standalone device. In other words, if we really focus on creating those APIs and the interoperable data so that different pieces can plug together as a system of systems then I think we'll be able to navigate that complexity. If we try to create one big monolithic system that somehow manages to have tendrils out there into every training, education, and workforce device, that will never work. So we can't go through a traditional acquisition process where we just buy one big system. Instead, we need to focus on these open data standards and APIs and really focus on how do we make it so heterogeneous technologies can plug together Again, an internet-like approach versus a one big piece of software to rule them all sort of approach. When we chatted before, I loved the concept of that intelligent training system to, that knows what you want and can adapt to the user. And you know, if, if a user is dyslexic or has certain different kinds of needs, it can really tailor its requirement, differentiate to each individual user. One of the other examples you gave me, which I really liked as well, was the ability to map to civilian careers and then that allows military personnel to then jump from potentially military to a civilian role and then back to the military again as seamlessly as possible and i just think that's a great example of help in the uk we have a huge recruitment retention crisis within the military it's, it's no secret but making it easy for people to jump in and out and test the waters i think would provide that clear return on investment and allow personnel not to feel trapped and allow them to explore and Obviously, the experience generated from the civilian world will only benefit the military world when they come back in again as well. Are we still at the theory development stage of this concept? Are there contracts that are looking to implement this or develop it? Or is it being in developed or implemented within a country or organization? The learning ecosystem concept is being implemented in a number of places. Certainly, the U.S. Department of Defense is investing in a number of ways. There are also large-scale standards organizations that are involved in developing open standards and working through the concepts associated with it, such as the faculty and staff that are needed to develop content or to manage data in these systems. For example, the IEEE has the Learning Technology Standards Committee, as well as the ICICLE group, which is the Learning Engineering Group. Those are the faculty, staff, technicians who work with these concepts. Again, across academia, you see this as well, not just as something that's being studied, but actually as something that's being implemented. I think that large-scale businesses are also implementing their own learning ecosystems, their own, let's say, intranet of learning things. And you'll see that in places where they talk about XAPI, competencies, 
learner records, and so on. You just mentioned learning engineering, and that was another phrase that we brought up in our pre-chat. So what is learning engineering and how does it differ or relate to learning ecosystem? So a learning ecosystem is really the technology to enable lifelong learning and the optimization of that. Learning engineers or the learning engineering discipline is the emerging application of skills needed to make this sort of learning ecosystem work. So it's learning sciences, it's software, data, learning analytics, environmental classroom designs and training simulation designs. And it's that emerging field and the processes needed to make something like this work. To go back a little bit, we've talked about the learning ecosystem as a way of creating content interoperability and as a way of creating human interoperability across organizations. But one of the things we haven't really talked about is the benefit of the data about individuals and teams' performance that you're going to get out of this system of systems. What we tend to do nowadays is create learning islands. So somebody might go to a training event and that has a beginning and it has an end. And within that beginning and an end, it might be a fantastic experience. But nonetheless, each person who arrives is generally treated like a blank slate. And then when they leave, usually we throw away the data. So we're not really able to optimize much more than at a very local, very narrow level. Think about all those people who leave who are not yet fully trained and have gaps in their knowledge. Maybe they've met the qualification standard, but they still have Swiss cheese holes in their thinking. And vice versa. Think about all those people who were already fully qualified when they arrived and they spent the whole time there being bored and wasting their time. Now, if we could start to identify those holes or those levels of competency across these different experiences, so we could start to optimize across the learning islands, that would allow us to have both more time and more uh, better outcomes across our personnel. So that's a big part of the concept here is to create those personalized feedback loops so that we can optimize now, if you think about learning islands, you're probably thinking them about them at a very tactical level, but you can start to think about how they cluster across time, not just one training event, one educational opportunity, one e-learning course, but how do I start to optimize somebody's career trajectory for their next rank, for their next job? And as you mentioned earlier, both within the military and security space, going out into the private sector, coming back and so on. So thinking about these feedback loops at different levels of abstraction so that we can find more time, more effectiveness, and so that we can keep pace with the change around us. We haven't really talked about this, but I think we all recognize how quickly the world is changing and how it's no longer sufficient to just go to a course for a year or four years or even an eight-year degree and expect to be competent across your entire life. Instead, you need to constantly be learning. The folks at Harvard call this a 60-year curriculum because across your entire career, you're going to basically need to be learning. Now, we will never be able to do that effectively if everybody has to be in school for 60 years. They'll never be working. Instead, we need to be much more precise about the training and education and experiences that people receive so that it's optimized to what they need and what we need at an organizational level. 
Otherwise, we can't keep pace. I was just thinking about my time at officer training. So at Sandhurst in the UK, the eclectic mix of people that arrived on day one was another level. You've got people who don't have any family in the military. It's their first step into the military world, have no idea what to expect. And then you've got trained soldiers who have passed some selection to become an army officers. They may have been in for 10 years previously or five years previously with multiple operational tours of experience. Then you've got the reserve officers who maybe just came back at the time, just came back from Afghanistan doing a int officer's job or whatever it might be, a really, you know, significant tour. And they're bringing so much experience. But you start off day one, week one, and you're in your overalls again, and you're learning how to carry a ironing board up a bunch of stairs and stamp your feet and salute. So I could see how that clearly could turn the course more efficient and allow you know, troops not to get bored. I suppose you've got the counter argument to that. That is the value that those officer cadets brought to the other officer cadets who didn't have a lot of experience. If you took them out or got them doing other things, what would be the detrimental effects of that? Question one. And then question two is, I left the military and became a teacher for a year, hardest year of my life. Because you, when you try and differentiate to a classroom of 30 or 40 people as a one person, maybe with a teaching assistant, it is extremely hard. So when we start talking about differentiating on an individual level, how, how do we expand the teams to be able to give the actual delivery required? Those are excellent questions. And this is exactly why we need learning engineering to go with the learning ecosystem. And I think we've all experienced that state where you have technology, some new shiny bell or whistle technology, and it just doesn't do anything. In fact, it's more difficult. It's more expensive. And I think that we run the risk if we implement this learning ecosystem approach without that very careful, nuanced learning science and larger consideration, that it becomes expensive and less effective potentially. So you're right. We need to understand individuals and team dynamics. Sometimes you do want those people who are already qualified to stick around, to be models and mentors. Sometimes you need to optimize and move them on to the next task so that they don't get bored and so that you use your personnel resources most efficiently. There's not a single answer on how that works, but step one is unlocking the data. Because right now, Everybody is treated more or less like a blank slate. So we don't have the opportunity to do that differentiation, that optimization and personalization. We need to start to unlock the data and then start to experiment. Small scale experiments and then building up to where you can optimize both at the individual and organizational levels. I think the problem with this conversation is, is you offer us a million different paths to go down. <laughs> it's great. The last one I thought of while you were talking, but we were having this discussion and it's sort of army mad scientist stuff. There was one that was quite interesting and it got me thinking just in the area of aircrew training. I think it applies across all military. And I think it's the problem that it's a self-reinforcing system, right? So we select pilots aircrew on the base of what we think a good pilot looks like because we go and talk to pilots. But we don't truly know. We might be excluding a, a psychological makeup or a type, a personality type, because they never get through the system or they get stopped early on and they never come. It's that bias, that reinforcing bias that plays. And we don't, if we actually ask, well, what is actually the science behind what would be a good pilot versus a good rear crew guy or a good mission specialist? We just say, well, we'll just compare it to what a mission specialist looks like today. Not that we have a fundamental understanding of what, you know, there's some theory behind it, but I don't think there's, you know, go back to your point about the data. Where's the data that supports this? 
the only data we have is those guys got through. Exactly. How is and that? The path that somebody took to get through from point A to point B, that worked for them. But maybe a different person needs different skills or different practice opportunities. And perhaps they would have been just as good a pilot if they had been trained and educated in a different way or had different time spent on particular knowledge or skills. And it's fine when we have plenty of time and plenty of people for us to require everybody to take the same path to achievement and to say, oh, you didn't make it. We're going to kick you out of the program. But as we have these accelerating demands, as we have many, many more skills and knowledge that people are expected to have, much more sophisticated levels of capability, new technologies and accelerating challenges across the operational environment, we don't have the luxury to throw out qualified candidates or potentially qualified candidates just because they don't learn in the same way that we do, or they need a little bit extra time on a particular module. And we don't have the time to throw out potentially qualified people who would be a fantastic, like you said, air crew versus pilot. If we could do a better job of placing people in the right roles and giving them the right preparation, we could be a lot more efficient. You got there more eloquently, but it's a terribly <laughs> wasteful system, isn't it? Because it's predicated on actually for the top, what we perceive as the top guys, special forces training is a classic example as well. It has a very high attrition rate by design. I know they call it selection, but the selection and then there's attrition as well. So in terms of what they're, what they're actually looking for is there just has to be that attrition because then we know we've got the final percent, but it's the final percent that are just really good at hanging on in there. Exactly. Like, is that the same as going to be a, being a good operator? And it, it, it might be. And, you know, for something we're talking about special operators, there is a lot of value in those non-cognitive skills like grit. When we're talking about cyber operators or people who are countering disinformation or other people who are working across a whole of society defensive approach, what is the best route to achievement, to qualification? Is there just one route or are there a variety of ways that we can train and educate people and that there are individual differences that we could optimize around? I think very likely we can be more effective and efficient through these data-driven, technology-enabled approaches. Okay, sadly, we are coming to the end of this conversation. I think there's a lot of food for thoughts and uh, I think I can hear, almost hear the listeners' brains ticking over here, which is great. The last question I've got is if people have listened to this and gone, yeah, this all makes sense or, you know, as we hope people do, cherry-pick the bits that's relevant to them and their organisations, how could an organisation start with this? Do they have to, like, basically go back to the drawing board and just start from the foundations? Or Happily, this approach can be taken incrementally and it doesn't have to be expensive. In fact, if anyone comes to you and says, buy this big software system that will be a learning ecosystem, run away. Because <laughs> the whole concept here is incremental Lego block building, a modular open systems approach. So a good place to start would be to look at the book called Modernizing Learning. If you search for it from the U.S. government, you'll find it online. It's available for free as a PDF. And I'm sure we can share a link in... We'll put them in the show notes. That's a good place to start for information. Second, for the technical people, I would recommend you look at the IEEE Learning Technology Standards Committee. And for the faculty and staff side of things, look at the IEEE Learning Engineering Group called ICICL. 
As far as starting within your own organization, I would suggest creating a learning engineering cell, a group of diverse people who will work on small scale projects to incrementally build out this concept. You can start by implementing XAPI or another interoperable data standard to pull runtime data out of systems and to correlate it across a very basic competency framework so that you can start to have water through the pipes of a very small basic learning ecosystem at the local level. Over time, you can build this up and connect it across other organizations, topics, and across time. This is something I've heard elsewhere is that organizations are aware they're not doing this. You know, they're not looking at the data. And they're also sat on large amounts of legacy data, but it's in an unstructured format and therefore, well, no one's going to go through all that and the reports or all the um, all the logs, which do exist. They're just in a pretty un- unaccessible format or, or lost. I mean, one of the two. You know, I think people are aware of this and I've been seeing more and more about dynamic learning systems. I mean, it's always been a theory, but there are products out there that promise to do this. Yeah, so there are a lot of products out there that promise to do this, and they tend to be more of a learning island, right? So it is a piece of monolithic software that you buy it, you're locked into that vendor, and they will analyze your data for you. That's fine at a local level, but it it doesn't have that generalizability or that extensibility across the future. It's still locked into a bore-sided, narrow, focused approach. What we really want to get to is a continuum. And that's why I suggest starting with a learning engineering team and incrementally building out and getting to a place where you're better able to move your data around. One of the things I also like to tell people is think about where we are today with data and artificial intelligence. Do you think that it's ever going to slow down, that it's going to we're going to have less AI in the future? Of course not. So it's better to get started today, to fumble through, to create a messy learning ecosystem at the local level that doesn't really work super well, because you're going to learn from that experience and you can start to build up over time. If you wait until we've accelerated further, that merry-go-round of AI has started to spin faster and faster, it'll be so much more difficult to get on board than in the future. So start today. Know that at the beginning, your pilot projects are going to be pretty terrible, but that you're going to learn through the process and become a much more data literate organization as a result. So just lastly, do you think there's a an open source approach a bit like, you know, developers have GitHub before ChatGPT, the answer is going to be in Git. There's going to be a code snippet somewhere in GitHub. Oh, I'm so happy you asked because I'm... Yes, actually, so much of this work is being done as open source and open standards. The IEEE group that I mentioned, all of that work is open standards. You can also find open educational resources that are tagged with these different APIs and data standards. So I would say yes. In fact, I would strongly encourage people to start with the free or low-cost solutions because there are so many opportunities out there. You don't need to spend money on this. You need to spend brain power and organizational time to start to move this work forward. And certainly I think organizations are getting smarter that they now run away from suppliers that are going to go, that's our IP, and say, we need to own the source. And I wonder if the next step is, because you talk about open standards, that's great, but unless they actually share the content or share the data, you know, if you're, let's say you're an aircrew training organization, 
wouldn't it be great if you could say, look, here's our understanding about the entry standards, the type of success we get. Here's a data set. We've anonymized it. So you don't know who Joe Bloggs is, but you should start sharing data. Is that, is that what we're actually talking about? Because open standards go so far. If you don't share content and data in that standard, then it doesn't matter that you're on open standard. You uh, hit the nail on the head. Absolutely right. So we need to be savvy as organizations. And also we need to be savvy about the ethics of it. You did mention this, you know, about making sure that the data are anonymized. There are a lot of questions, but there are people that are working on this. So if you look at self-sovereign identity, that's one of the areas where people are looking at how we can manage data ethically across these systems. And again, there are people working across the US, the UK, and many other countries to try to create this open, interoperable internet of learning things. So if you start with the IEEE, if you start with learning engineering, I think that you'll start to find those people and create those networks of connections. Right. It's great to see your inner data geek coming out there, Colin. But I think we're coming to the end of this chat. Say thank you very much. And we will hopefully get you on in season three, if you will come back. Already, already the office. That's never going to happen before. One of those subjects that we weren't sure which threads to pull because there were too many. And it's a thorny one. I think we were, we were sort of going into actually it makes you realize how much we have to do. Yeah. There's many things we could we could do right now if we wanted to that sort some of this out. Yeah. And I think Sale appreciate the fact that I think a lot of your, your questioning around was actually sounds great, but how do we actually do this? Mm. And I think she'll appreciate that as well. It is It is a really challenging topic with so many confounding variables that it's, you know, it's another level to try and solve it. However, what I loved about it at the end was her final thing she said, talking about how AI is not going to slow down. It's only going to get more complicated. We're only going to get more data. So the idea of stopping a clock to save time, it's the same concept for this, I think. We know we've got to do it. We've got to take the ball by the horns and get on with it. Yeah, and I think we wanted to have this discussion because it's right up the street for things like Army Collective Training. It's almost like... There's a lot more we, we can be clever about what we already do rather than having to have, you know, I don't know, some magic innovation or technology. We could just do what we do better. Uh-huh. I don't think we should be too negative. There are actually some really good examples of this. Again, won't name names. I've seen stuff in the army where they go, right, it's fixed mastery, variable time. So this is like the first step. You can go uh-huh. through at your pace. We're not going to slow you down, which is what traditionally goes, well, course ends there. You can sit through through this sunshine i don't care if you're bored <laughs> you can you can accelerate yourself through funny dit the um ex i think he was an ex teaching sergeant or something he was running it and he said yeah the problem with the kids these days is i was down the pub and chasing <laughs> girls and and now they just want to get through the course yeah <laughs> to the front line it's terrible it's not what it least. <laughs> yeah brilliant and i can imagine that and also when, when it's about retention as well allowing the residential days away from your family to be shorter if you do the pre-work i think is that a no-brainer well it was i mean these were young kids like 18 19 and and they just want to go and do their job whatever mm-hmm. that was go and fix tanks or build stuff and that's what they wanted to do they didn't want to be in an educational establishment do a frontline task so commendable <laughs> say was also probably too humble to mention she has a book out yep. which is free to download it's called engines of engagement a curious book about generative ai there's a whole chapter about AI for learning, and it's a great read if you really want to get your head around this thing that 
we keep talking about on the podcast called generative ai so the links will be in the show notes for that colin anything from you um, yeah plus some other links she gave us so a, a treasure trove of information one maybe for a future episode because there's some other other things she's working on so yeah no towards the end we normally have a call to action like rate and review but actually i think this is a different approach i think if you have got this far into the podcast i've enjoyed it and just keep an eye out on linkedin for our posts and if you do see it give it a like and if you're feeling really confident about the content give it a share as well and get it out there that's the best way you can help our podcast grow and we would really appreciate it if you do it until next time colin i will uh yep bid you adieu Bye.